folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to bring shame to the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, we who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Hope everyone's doing well this beautiful morning. We're continuing in our series uh, in our letter, then Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Now, if you remember, Paul was dealing with some major issues in the church he just left. He's in Ephesus at this time. Issues of division, immorality, puffed up pride, and so on. Issues dealing with like even communion and the way rich people would go eat communion first and then the poor people would try to feast and they'd have separations. Last week I shared that Paul's answer to the issues is to preach and teach the gospel message. He's reminding the Corinthians how the good news came to them and that they have not graduated past it. 
This is also true for us. We need to dive deeper into the gospel and not graduate away from it. Today, guys, we're looking at a brief aside that Paul seems to make here in this letter. He starts with his introduction, talks about the gospel, then quickly, quickly mentions briefly divisions in the church. Then he makes this dive into wisdom, then he goes back into issue with leaders and division in chapter 3. So why this dive into wisdom at the end of the chapter, chapter 1 and into verse chapter 2? Why is Paul so adamant to point out the difference between the wisdom he came with versus the wisdom of the world? I believe that he dives into this talk on wisdom to address the issue of unity and to show what the people of Corinth needed. They needed to see the world for what it was and the message of the cross for what it is. They needed and we need to see that the message of the cross flips our world and our understanding upside down. So when I was doing some research, guys, for this sermon, I typed into Google. This is where I start off with often things, as most of you probably do. Not the best way to research, but this is what I did. I typed into Google wisdom. And started looking up, like, oh, here's what wisdom means. Then I typed in words of wisdom. Then, just for fun, I typed in funny words of wisdom. This is what I came up with. This is good. You guys need to remember this stuff, okay? Here's some good words of wisdom for you guys, so you guys can be wise people. If at first you don't succeed... Skydiving is not for you. I thought that was a good word. That was a good word of wisdom. Another good word of wisdom. Your sole purpose in life may be simply to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) People will accept your idea more readily if you tell them that Benjamin Franklin said it first. On that exact same note, this is my strategy. On that note, if you want to refute someone's idea, say that sounds an awful lot like something Hitler would say. (laughs) It works every time. Never test the depth of water with both feet. Another good one. Sometimes the majority only means that all the fools are on the same side. And this is the last one, I like this one. If you lend someone $20 and never see that person again, it was probably worth it. Come on, right? <laughs> now, guys, verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice Paul's method here. He came to preach. He's not first a strategist or an apologist or a debater or a counselor. He's a preacher. He's supremely and first a preacher. And what, he, what will he say? He preaches the gospel. That centers on the cross of Christ. That's Paul's constant theme. His words of wisdom isn't these pithy sayings. It isn't eloquent words. It's he's literally saying, I'm preaching the gospel. That's what I'm doing. I'm speaking the gospel. That's what he's always talking about. He's talking about the cross as a singular obsession. And there's, there's, so his constant theme, his singular obsession, he's always talking about the cross. His manner here, his message, his method, his manner. So there are three things I want you to see. His message, his method, and his manner. Not with eloquent wisdom. There is a plainness and a directness about his preaching that distinguishes him from the other orators, the public lecturers, the speakers, the philosophers of the Corinthian culture. The great German reformer Martin Luther used this old Latin phrase, crux probate omnia. The cross is a test of everything. The cross is a test of everything. You see, for Christians, the cross of Jesus Christ isn't simply the center and the foundation of our faith and devotion. 
It becomes the gauge and the standard by which everything that is authentically Christian and soul-nourishing and eternally valuable is measured. If God will use it and bless it, it must first be cruciform. It must be cross-shaped. It will not generally be strong and impressive and adorned with the trappings of power and influence and prestige. Rather, it will have much about it the aroma of an unknown Jewish carpenter, crucified in shame in a backwater part of the Roman Empire. Christian ministry, Paul is going to teach us, like the Christian life, like Christ himself, must be crucified and cruciform, cross-shaped. And that's Paul's point, as we'll see in this passage this morning. Guys, what I want you to understand is this. There's this idea that Paul came to teach us this wisdom that was Christ-centered, that was cross-centered. And literally what that does, it takes our whole idea of what is right and what is wise and what is good, and it completely flips it on its head. Guys, as we look into our culture, as we look into the world, what we should be so profoundly struck with is that we are different. And what we value is totally different from what the world values. So the way I want to help us to see this in this text is I want to look at three themes. First of all, we'll think about what Paul says the world wants, what the world expects, what what does it rate and value and esteem, both in its message and its methodology. Second, we're going to need to see what the church actually has. So one, what the world wants. Two, what the church has. What are the resources with which the church is equipped to confront these expectations in the world? What the world wants, what the church has, and then thirdly, Paul really wants us to help us grasp what God will do in the middle of this encounter between what the church has and what the world wants. What will God do? What will we see that our faith and our confidence might rest neither in men nor in the methods, but in the power of God at work, in the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? So do you guys get that? That's kind of our outline. What the world wants, what the church has, and what God will do when confronted with what the world wants and with what the church has. You guys with me so far? What the world wants. First of all then, the world wants. Paul's answer in our passage is very clear. The world wants wisdom. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. What the world values, Paul says, is wisdom. He breaks it down a little for us in verse 22, in the two categories. He says, on the one hand, Jews demand signs. On the other hand, Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews wanted some miraculous sign to validate the message about Jesus before they were prepared to believe a word of it. See, guys, what he was saying is that they wanted Wisdom, they wanted to know. And say the Greeks wanted to know through signs, or not the Greeks, the Jews wanted to know through signs, through proof, while the Greeks wanted to know through thinking, enlightenment, philosophy. Here's a word about the Jews. The signs that they wanted, according to one scholar, were apocalyptic in tone, triumphalistic in character, and the embodiment of one of the mighty deeds of deliverance that God had worked in Israel's behalf in rescuing it from slavery. Guys, in other words, what the Jews were looking for was water from a rock. Seas parting, a plague of frogs. They wanted to see these miraculous work that they heard about in the Old Testament, and they wanted to see that coming, saying, this is how I will believe, will you show me that? On the other hand, what Greeks wanted was they wanted a message about Jesus to conform to their, their patterns of wisdom with which they were so familiar. They wanted Paul's judgment to be valued in how they saw the world. You see, to be wise in Corinth, would ordinarily be expected to result in power, prestige, influence. 
The wise could sway the crowd. They could navigate politics. They could advance their own social standing. This one commentator, David Garland, says that the wisdom at Corinth, according to Paul, was tied to the human condition, circumscribed by partial knowledge, susceptible to self-defeat, and twisted by the proclivity to become infatuated with status. It is blinded by its own conceit and pride. That's the wisdom of the world. And if you take a look around, things haven't changed all that terribly much. But we find these two approaches, sometimes in, in combination, but oftentimes see these two approaches to seeking wisdom in this day and age. People want evidence, right? They want to scientifically be proven this is correct. Here's my evidence. Here's why I believe in God. But honestly, if you think about it, most people who want this evidence, they only want evidence to already align with their own preconceived notions, right? Their predetermined prejudices. And people want a message that will fit their judgment about what is politically correct, socially acceptable, and culturally fitting. That's what is true and right and wise in the world's eyes. That which aligns to my own preferences and squares with my own tastes. Paul's description of the wisdom of the world is right on target even now. We see it all the time, susceptible to self-defeat, twisted by a proclivity to become infatuated with status. And I love this idea is that we see the commonality in the church of Corinth where the Jews wanted signs, they wanted proof, and the Greeks wanted this kind of philosophical wisdom. But honestly, the philosophical wisdom that already kind of dealt with how they already are thinking. You guys, can I just be honest with you guys? When we look around culture, we talk to our friends, we talk to people, don't we see people who are like, oh, I'm searching for God, but they're actually searching for a glorified version of themselves. Not really God. Tim Keller says something about that. Tim Keller says that if your God never disagrees with you, then most likely you're worshiping a, a glorified or idealized version of yourself. <laughs> Do you guys hear that? Man, this is beautiful ideas. That's what we're looking for. When we argue our point with people, when we argue our philosophical enlightened stance with people, right? We don't want them to give us wisdom. We just want them to agree with us, right? And here we are, it was just like the Church of Corinth, they wanted wisdom, but honestly, they just want wisdom that makes them feel better at night. Or they wanted wisdom that puffs themselves up. The methodology of worldly wisdom. Notice that right along with the message of the world, the message that the world wants, there's an apparent kind of method of worldly delivery of this worldly wisdom. Paul alluded to it back in verse 17. You see, in verse 17, Paul is going to preach the gospel, but not the way the world expects him, with words of eloquent wisdom. Wisdom, you see, in order to be recognized by the world as wisdom, right, has to be packaged just right. It has to come decked out in eloquence, impressive oratory skills, and all the trappings of a socially acceptable and attractive speech of the culture. Paul makes a similar point again in verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The wise and the scribe and the debater are like the, the, the peddlers of the age's wisdom. Today we might paraphrase and say, where is the, the life coach, the journalists, the political pundits, and the talk show hosts? of this age. Those are the models of worldly wisdom with which we're also very familiar and they exert a real social pressure on our speech patterns and our principles. And we have to take them very seriously. What the world wants, a message heavy with the wisdom of this age with a methodology to match. What the Corinthian church was looking for is not just signs and philosophy, but you need to do it in such a manner that you're, you know, I, I'll hear you, right? They weren't looking for wisdom from a shepherd. They weren't looking for wisdom from a carpenter. They were looking for wisdom from a great philosopher. Do you hear me? And that's what happened, in, that's what happens with the cross and what is so radical about this message that Paul says, listen, Paul could have. You guys know, Paul was a smart dude. 
He was well-trained, educated. He could have came in and said, okay, this is how you want it, fine. I'll put on my robes with all my doctorate degrees on and say, ahem, some deep philosophy. And he did that in other places. I was, I was, I was about to say like a deep philosophical quote to him, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But it's not what he did. He did that in other places. But with the Corinthians, they, he knew what they were looking for. And he says, this, I need to flip your world upside down. Because what you're looking for is the trappings of wisdom and not wisdom itself. What you're looking for is the methodology. What you're looking for is words that make you feel good about what you already, uh, your preconceived notions you already have. And he says, no, 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 I'm not coming to you with that. I'm not coming to you with power. I'm not coming to you with the trappings. I'm going to come with just one message, a simple one, a backwards one, a crazy one. A carpenter in a backwater part of town became nothing. And he died upon a cross so that nothing you can do to earn salvation, but he freely gives it to you. It's crazy. See, here's what the church has. The demands for wisdom are real and pressing and the expectations that Paul will kind of accommodate both the message and the method to win a hearing. See, here's the temptation that Paul has, is that, okay, I can accommodate the message. They want signs, I can give them signs. Oh, they want, they want um, philosophy, I can give them philosophy. You know, there's a, um, a, the, there's a phrase in customer service that the customer is always right, right? So you just do whatever it takes to make the customer, give them what they want, give the people what they want. So if they want all this, just give it to them, be flashy. You know, um, make them feel good about themselves. Don't say anything offensive, right? Isn't that a temptation? Guys, can I be honest with you guys? I feel that temptation. Do you know how often when people come to me and ask me about, what do you think about this? Or, and especially there's, there's certain people who like love to just, you know, try to trap you in the conversations too. I'll be honest with you, I was on NPR, uh, uh, what's that thing called? Um, thank you, State of Things. There was a show the other day, and honestly, I was, af- I, was, I was interviewed for like an hour, and I was afraid the whole time before I agreed to be on this interview, like, are they gonna try to trap me into saying something I don't wanna say? Am I gonna be put into a position where it's uncomfortable? So like the whole time I'm like, Okay, I'm gonna do this, but we'll see what happens. It didn't happen, it was awesome. I think it went really well. I got to, I got to express, um, I think, the gospel well in that, but the whole time, I, there's a temptation in my heart all the time to say, you know, I don't wanna offend anybody. I don't wanna, uh, I don't wanna say anything that's controversial, right? I don't wanna do anything or say anything or, or, or present myself in a way that would hurt people's hearts or offend them, but can I tell you something, guys? I'm just gonna be honest and real with you guys. That the temptation, or that temptation needs to be fit, brought face to face with what, instead of trying to not offend people, we need to actually love people well. Amen. And to speak the truth. Because what we don't want is we don't want people worshiping an idolized version of themselves. What we don't want is people worshiping something that has no substance and cannot stand in the hardest times of life. We want them to know a real relationship with a living Savior. Customer's not always right. We need to speak truth when it's time to speak truth. And the world wants wisdom, whether the evidence-based approach or the socially kind of self-promoting model of the Greeks, the world wants wisdom. But what does the church have? Well, the church offers a world that demands wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul knows what the world wants. He knows nothing more that he knows that nothing more offensive to Jews and Greeks alike can be imagining that a message about a crucified Messiah. 
but he will not accommodate his message. He's gonna, he's gonna speak it, he's gonna talk about the cross of Christ. Think about this for us. Now I know for us it's hard to understand how ridiculous this is, how even offensive this is, but the cross is radical. When he's saying, I'm gonna preach the cross, here's what we have, we have the cross, right? For the readers of this, they're gonna be like, what? You have the cross? For us, the cross in our culture is not offensive. It's very pervasive, it's on jewelry. Churches have it all over the place. You know, there's a song that can have Jesus on my necklace. I mean, come on, it's on pop music pop culture. The cross is not offensive to us. It's commonplace. It's inoffensive. It's clean. It's safe. But in Paul's day, things were radically different. The Roman orator Cicero said this, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was a vulgar, gruesome, shocking thing even to mention the cross or crucifixion in polite society. And so the words that Paul uses in our passage to describe his message really does capture how people felt about it. In verse 18, it is folly. It is foolishness. In verse 23, the Greek word is moria. We get our English words moron and moronic from it. That's how people thought about Paul and his preaching and his message. It is moronic. It is idiotic. What do you mean the most offensive, um, the, most, uh, the way we punish criminals, you're preaching that? How is that glory? How is that something you preach? How is that wisdom? Who would believe such a foolish thing that by the means by which God would save the world is a crucifixion, is a perverse, gruesome thing? And when he says to the Jews, found that it to be a stumbling block, the word he uses is scandalon. It means an insurmountable obstacle, a barrier to faith that could not be surpassed. It stretches believability. It is offensive, it is absurd, it is a scandalous thing. And so the pressure to lighten up and dumb down and back off and repackage or retool our message has been enormous. It is offensive, it is weird, it is folly, it is moronic. The cross? You're telling me, in light of all the philosophies of our age, in light of all the intellectual thinkers, your message, your only message that you're gonna combat me was that there is something that the greatest kind of punishment tool we've had for criminals is your hope of salvation? It is folly. It is folly. The same thing applies to the methodology, not just the message. Paul is utterly committed to preaching. He did not send me to baptize, but to preach, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Actually, that's not the best translation. The folly there applies not just to the message, what we preach, but to the method of preaching. Literally, what Paul says is, is please God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. And the word that he uses here for preaching, the caruso, the verb for preaching to preach, along with other synonyms that are used in the New Testament for it, were never ever used by orators or philosophers or public speakers in a rhetoric or rhetorical manuals of the day. These were terms never applied to the orator's art. Paul is very deliberate in selecting the vocabulary that distinguishes him from what his traveling wise men or traveling thinkers would go about doing. What distinguishes him from the kind of the lecture circuit of the public squares of the Greco-Roman world. What Paul is saying is he's a herald. He has a different message. He's not another guy peddling a new thought, a new philosophy, a new cool idea. He's not saying he's another lecturer, saying hey, new way of thinking. He's not saying he's another life coach, another inspirational speaker. He's not saying I come with eloquent words. He's saying I just preach the message of Jesus and it's the message that, that wins, not the messenger. He's a herald. 
He was sent by the king with a message that he's to stand and proclaim with authority and urgency. He's simply to stand and declare the good news to all the world that God has made provision for sinners in Jesus Christ crucified. Nothing has changed since the time in Corinth. Preaching often seems irrelevant and the message about the cross is still often uncomfortable. And so the pressure bearing down upon Paul to adjust and modify his approach, to adapt to the patterns of culture, to make the message acceptable, that's still enormous today, isn't it? You can see it if you look at some of the churches of our day. And please, this is not me trying to criticize churches, but so often there are churches of this day who care so much to make the message inoffensive that they repackage it. So the supernatural is rejected, the ethics of the Bible are ridiculed, and the exclusivity of the gospel, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. That exclusivity of the gospel is considered profoundly offensive. As the gospel is accommodated to the tastes and preferences of the world, the cross is de-emphasized and it loses its power. But brothers and sisters, my people, the cross of Christ is all we have. It's all we have to offer. It's the good news about Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And that's it. So Paul is calling us here. He's to take courage in our hands and to make him known. The world wants wisdom, the world, but what we have is the message. It's the word of the cross. The world craves wisdom, craves silence, and all we have, all we're doing to do is to proclaim with boldness to be a herald the cross of Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave us with the world's expectations and the challenge to speak the truth fearlessly. He comes along behind us and he speaks. One of the great emphases of our passage is on the sovereignty of God. Verse 18 says this, the word of the cross is followed to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Guys, I want you to hear this, that the methodology and the, 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 the beautiful um, emptiness of his methodology came is intentional that Paul came in with this not with great words not like the lecture circuit but he came with the simple message of Jesus crucified upon the cross guys to show you that that's the only message that we need to give it flips the world completely upside down the Bible is just full of that the Bible is known to do that the Bible says hey for you to become great what do you have to do anybody yeah let's see it again to be least right that's what the Bible says. To, to become great, you become least. To guys, to, to get salvation, typically the world and everything in it, that everything you've taught, every religion, every system of, of transactional system that we've seen in our culture says, to get something, you have to work harder to get it, right? But the Bible says no. In Christianity and in the life of the cross, it says to, to earn salvation is to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ. That there is no earning it. The message of the cross flips everything that we know and flips it completely upside down. Guys, can, I, can you hear me really quickly? I want you, everybody look at me, and I want you to get this. I don't want you to miss this. If you miss anything else today, I don't want you to miss this. Is that you, right here, right now, your world needs to be flipped upside down. Man, we're so caught up in believing in the philosophies and the worldly wisdom of this world. Because maybe you've been taught by it your whole life. You've been taught, man, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, so I better get after mine, right? Maybe you've been taught that it's all the ones who work harder, who are smarter, who are sneakier, who gets ahead. That's what you've been taught. Those are the words of wisdom you've been taught, right? Maybe you've been taught, hey, those who look better, those who are um, popular, 
those are the ones who succeed. Maybe you've been taught that maybe I have to look a certain way, I have to act a certain way to receive any kind of love in my life. Because if I don't, there's no way I can get love. Maybe you don't deserve that. You think that there is true, a thing as true love. I was listening to a testimony today somebody shared with me. And in this testimony, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. But in his testimony today, he said that for the longest time in his life, he really believed that he did not deserve anything good. And if anything good ever happened, it was just there just so he could be taken away quickly. The world sells its wisdom. And the world has its own words of wisdom for you. Can I tell you, though, that if you believe and understand the message of the cross, it says that is folly. That is what true folly is. And even though the world says what the cross's message is folly, it is, it is the words that save life. It is the truth that changes experience. It flips your whole understanding of reality on its head. And then now it makes the world and all its wisdom be in another dimension that we're only in for a little while. Does that make sense? So instead, the words of wisdom that we believe in and says, hey, you can be known and you can be loved and you are called to purpose. That's words of wisdom now for you. That you are a beloved son and daughter that you can cry out for, like First John and say, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. That we are called co-heirs alongside Jesus. Do you guys hear that? That there's nothing you did to earn it and there's nothing you can do to get it, take it away from you. It is yours through the gift of Jesus and the work that he's done upon the cross. His, your identity, your reality, your situation, your truth. Guys, you hear this. These are the words of wisdom that the cross is teaching us. And here's the problem. The world has this expectation. This is what it expects. But here's what the church has. The church has its own words. Church has the cross. It has the message of the cross that changes everything. And here's then what happens when that comes into this beautiful collision together. What happens when what the world wants and the message and what the church has comes together? It shows God at work. Verse 19 says, quoting Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise in this sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Salvation, God says, will not come through the wisdom of the world. God's going to use other means. And so in verse 21, it pleased God the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God uses the folly of the gospel proclaimed. And if you look at verses 24, 25, it kind of the, uh, sums it up perfectly. Um, to those who are being called, there's an emphasis on God, sovereignly at work to bring people to himself. To those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, this foolish, weak message is in fact Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolish of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This silly, unlikely tool, the message of a cross-crucified Jesus, is what's capturing and changing hearts. Paul is captured by the message and enabled him in the face of almost crushing expectations of the world to not conform to the worldly wisdom, but to stand face to face and be a herald proclaiming the cross. He was a fool for Christ. And in this type, in this beautiful encounter where the foolishness of the cross meets the wisdom of the world, guys, can I tell you this? The cross wins. We've seen it in our own lives, haven't we? 
for those who can testify, for those of you who know Jesus, who, who can testify to this, those of you who can say, hey, that's what happened, the wisdom of the world, the way my parents raised me, the culture that existed, my, my education, whatever it may be, that came face to face with the message of the crazy folly message of the cross. And can I tell you what won? The cross won. Not because it was spoken by more eloquent people, not because it was given a million PhDs, but because the message of the cross spoke to my heart and the Holy Spirit changed me. See, here's the thing that we have. What happens is when we see the confrontation of the worldly wisdom and what the church has is the message across, we see the Holy Spirit then in the confrontation of it together causing actual change. Right? Can I just be honest with you? This is something that I've always, I've, I've thought about often, but if you, there's a guy named Christopher Hitchens. He's, I think he passed away. But a famous atheist debater. A really famous guy. He wrote a book called uh, God is Not Great. And I remember watching him debate this other Christian guy, and he smoked him. I mean, it was, it was bad. I was like, oh, I just feel bad for all Christians right now. Oh, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. Oh, I feel bad. <laughs> I mean, it was just a, it was a terrible. I mean, he just got smoked. But then I saw him debate another guy, and it was much, it was much better. But that first time when I watched this debate, I was like, man, this guy's going to, if I went to debate with him, and I fairly, you know, I'd study some apologetics, but nowhere near his level as these other guys, right? If I went to debate with this guy, he would probably smoke me. I don't have the five PhDs from Oxford and Harvard and all these places. I just, I just can't compete, right? I, I know that in my mind. Now, I also know this. I was at RTS in Orlando, and uh, some of the RUF people just staged a debate at UCF's campus, and they kind of cheated a little bit because they went to RTS and got Richard Pratt. And Richard Pratt at the time was like, you know, Harvard undergrad, Oxford, masters, Yale, PhD, Harvard, all, I mean, just ridiculous guy, right? So they brought him in, and I don't think the UCF staff took it very seriously, and they said, like, this TA in the philosophy department. <laughs> and so here's Richard Pratt versus this guy, and we were watching the debate, and it was bad. <laughs> so I'm not saying that, you know, Christians shouldn't be good at apologetics. Do not hear that. Please do not hear that at all. I think we should be very good at apologetics. Okay, that's the aside. What I do know is I would be smoked by Christopher Hitchens in a debate. I just know that, right? He would smoke me. I'm just, I don't have all the, the nuances of debating and logic and the, the way that he can just probably smoke me. That's okay. Because what happened in my life is I had this inner debate anyway. What happened in my life is, is I grew up in a life of, of the world's worldly wisdom taught me that I need to work harder because my parents worked really hard and I need to do better because my parents told me that if you want to succeed in this world, you need, if, if, if the white kid gets a 95, I need to make a 99. Right? I need to work that much harder than everybody else. I need to be that much better than anybody else because right now the world's against you and you need to do better. Right? So that's what I was taught my whole life. So this idea then, this debate existed anyway, is that for me to have any kind of relationship with God, I just better be a better person than everybody else. Otherwise, why else would God love me? And this debate that existed, that's bigger than any debate that Christopher Hitchens can come up with, better than any argument. But what happened, guys, can I tell you what happened? Is it the Holy Spirit in that midst of that encounter, in the midst of that encounter between what, what the church has, the gospel of the cross and the, the wisdom of the world, in that encounter, what the world wants, became the Holy Spirit and he transformed my life. And the only way I was able to believe is because God is sovereign and he opened up my heart to believe. Guys, can I tell you something? It has never been and never will be your responsibility to get anybody to believe in salvation and in the message of the cross. You're not powerful enough to do it. You're not a good enough speaker. 
You can't share the gospel well enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not manipulative enough. I, I, I hope that's not what happens. Your only responsibility is to be a proclaimer of the cross. Do you hear that? Your only responsibility is a proclaimer of this message that flips the world upside down and then you let the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God say, yes, I will change hearts through this message. I've done it before in the past and I'll do it again. Do you get that? Do you get that? Because that's what happens at this beautiful confrontation between what the church has. Church, guys, it's so easy to want to say stuff like, oh, we got the most talented people, we got the most beautiful people, which I think you guys are. Some of the most talented, most beautiful people in the world. I think so. I'm biased, but I do believe it. But what we all really, what we come down to it, what we really have is we just have the message of the cross. We have Jesus and him crucified. And God takes that and changes the world. May that be the message that we preach. May that be the, the message that we live. May that be the, what we speak and herald to this world. Not because we're better speakers, do we want people to know. Not because we're more eloquent. Not because we look better and we look more put together. Because the message of the cross flips the world upside down. Amen? So will you be heralds? And not come with eloquent words, but with a simple message. And trusting God will do his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you that the wisdom of the world is nothing compared to the, what we, the world considers folly. God, that the cross is so contrary to what we've been taught. The cross is so foreign to what we've been given. The cross is so different and seems like folly, but God, it's salvation for us. It is salvation for us. God, you flip this world upside down. God, you make us now a place where we can understand that we're known and loved and called to purpose. We're in relationship with you, that you flip it completely upside down, and we thank you for it. God, may we be heralds. May we know nothing more than Christ crucified. And trust that your spirit will empower that message to change lives. God, Receive all the glory. It's all yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.